You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. The word justice um, and even restorative justice is often a misunderstood, a misunderstood term. It's kind of been hijacked, I, I think, like, like a lot of words, uh, a lot of biblical words. Uh, they have a tendency to get hijacked. Like one of the words that I think is the most hijacked word ever is the word love. And I've said this a hundred times, but I love, you know, that song. I love the sunrise. I love, you know, this coat. I love my wife. I love my kid. I love God. And it's like love means nothing at that point, really. Uh, It means a lot of things. It means nothing kind of all at the same time. It has a sort of shallowness um, to it. And so it's important that we wrestle through the meaning of words and, and what they mean and what they really are. Because what we've lost a lot of times in our society are top-shelf words. And so, another word is like grace. You know, say grace over your dinner. Who wants to give grace for the food? Well, how do you give unmerited favor to the food? Um, or unearned favor to the food? And, and, and I'm not trying to get on to us if we say, hey, did anybody say grace? It's just my point is we lose what words mean because of the way we use them a lot of times. And I think justice is one of those words. Uh, whether it gets hijacked through politics or hijacked through um, poor usage, we just kind of lose sight of what it is. So this morning I want to offer um, more clarity for us as to what this means because we do organize our lives around this notion of restorative justice. And it is anything but a political, party political issue. It is a kingdom of God, human being issue. But I want to tell you a story. I, I had the joy of receiving an invitation to spend two days with Ann Atwater and Bob Zellner. They were leaders in the civil rights movement. Ann, both, Ann was specifically in Durham, North Carolina. I would, one day I would love to tell you her story, um, and I would unconditionally nurture the opportunity to tell you her story, um, but I'm not going to be able to do that today. Instead, I'll tell you Bob's. Um, born into a family of KKK members in 1939, Bob Zellner became one of the first white Southerners to join the Civil Rights Movement. He was recruited by Rosa Parks and Julian Bond to help organize white Southerners to join the Freedom Movement. Now, it all happened when Bob was a student at an all-white Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama. His senior sociology assignment prodded the class to use library research to find solutions to racial problems. Bob and his four classmates decided that instead of just going to the library, they would gather information from white supremacists as well as civil rights workers and a civil rights meeting at an all-black college. So attending the meeting for Bob and his classmates brought with it many different consequences, including fierce warnings from his professor, anger and torment from other students, and a stern warning, believe it or not, from Alabama's attorney general. They got called into the Alabama attorney general's office for doing this. And the attorney general accused them of, quote, falling under communist influence. Now, for those who don't remember or do not know, during the civil rights movement, those who opposed segregation were called communists. Those who were for segregation were called patriots. Just let that sink in for a moment. So despite the reprimands, Bob and his friends felt there was 
more to the story, and they continued learning about the purpose and the need for the civil rights movement. So Bob was asked to meet privately with Dr. King, Reverend Abernathy and Rosa Parks and others before taking the greater risk of joining a civil rights meeting surrounded by media and police and state investigators. And Bob told us the story that finally opened him up to joining the movement. And it was basically a simple statement that Rosa Parks offered Bob. And she said this. She said, Bob, you can, when you see something wrong, you're going to have to do something about it. You can't study it forever. So Bob stepped in and was eventually asked to serve as the field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was a man of great passion and tenacity, and frankly still is. He was a freedom writer and helped organize grassroots movements in the South. In particular, he founded a very successful movement called the GROW Project, G-R-O-W, which was an acronym for Grassroots Organizing Work, but it became known as the Get Rid of Wallace Movement. Because it was concerned with organizing change for rural whites and blacks who suffered equally in low wages and poor schools and health care and housing. But the key thing about Bob is that his story doesn't begin in 1960. See, Bob was born the son of a Methodist preacher and school teacher, Reverend James Zellner. This is Bob's father. This is Dr. Bob Jones Sr., you may know who Bob Jones is at Bob Jones University. Soon after birth, Bob began to learn that his father and his uncles and his grandfathers were robe-wearing members of the Ku Klux Klan. And in particularly, his father's father was a leader in the KKK. But everything began to change for James, which was Bob's dad, uh, when he was awakened from the sickness of racism. And so Bob told us a story that that soon after James, his father, graduated from seminary sometime around the 30s, Dr. Bob Jones Sr. recruited him to go on a mission trip to Europe with a small handful of selected men. And James at this time was still an active member of the KKK. But the goal of this mission trip was to travel Europe to spread the gospel to the Jews by working undercover to support the Jewish underground during the Nazi occupation. So it's a bit subversive. And after a little while and meetings and getting caught by Gestapo and all these different things and having their life threatened, after a little while, this little team uh, got separated. And so Dr. Jones returned back to the U.S. after only a couple of months, but, but left James Zellner behind. So during the dead of winter, isolated from English speakers for months, James Zellner stumbled across a group of black gospel singers who were also supporting the Jewish underground. And he found himself reliving the good old days of home with these black men talking about southern biscuits and gravy and warm fires. And Bob shared with us his father's direct quote from his own testimony. James says this, about those days. He says, We preached together and sang. We ate together in the homes of poor people together. We often using our fingers as utensils, reaching into a common pot of potatoes with small pieces of salt meat and maybe some cabbage. We even slept together, either in one big bed or huddled together on the floor for warmth beneath something or maybe in a blanket. We talked about home and food and a warm fire. And listen to James's own words here. And the most disconcerting thing kept happening. I forgot they were black. 
And the first time James realized what was happening, he thought he was having a nervous breakdown, like he had woken up, like he woke up suddenly and didn't know where he was. And he began to suffer this identity crisis. And the worst part for James, Zellner, was that they didn't even treat him like a white man. They treated him just like another person. And it finally began to bother this leader in the KKK so much that he decided to set his mind to forget about color while he was there and figured he would just go back to the way it was when he returned to Alabama. The problem was when James returned to Alabama in the mid-30s, he just couldn't be the same anymore. When James Zellner returned, he split from the KKK and chose to raise his children outside of the KKK. Bob recalls his mother being so happy that his father had left the KKK, that his mother took his father's white robes, cut it up into four different pieces, and made white Sunday school shirts for the boys. As Bob grew up and became recruited by Rosa Parks and Julian Bond and Dr. King into the Civil Rights Movement as one of the first whites to join and to help organize the Southerners, eventually Bob's father, James, joined him in the fight. Bob's father, James, joined him in righting some of the wrongs that for many years he and his father and his uncles wronged themselves as they would burn alive and lynch people because of the color of their skin. Bob's father gave his life to justice, and to this day, Bob is doing the same. Jesus found himself in a conversation with the crowds and his disciples in Matthew chapter 23. And it wasn't the happiest of conversations Jesus has ever had, I can assure you. And it goes like this. And Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. In other words, they have authority because they know the book, they know the Bible. Like James Zellner's dad probably did as a Methodist preacher, yet still a member of the KKK. But don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, they'll tell you, you can't do a single thing according to the law of Moses in regards to Sabbath, but they won't try hard to not do anything on Sabbath themselves. They'll tell you all day that you should do this and do that, but they won't really try. Verse 5, they do everything to be observed by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honors at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greeting in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. I read that for a service and it dawned on me. Williamsburg, Virginia is the only place I've ever lived where I cannot get a clergy parking spot to save my life. Like, there's no clergy parking in the hospitals. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Why do I have to walk as far as Danny? <laughs> I'm so spoiled and missed the point. But as for you, do not be called a rabbi because you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. And do not be called masters either because you have one master, the Messiah. 
The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so now Jesus is about to enter into the seven woes, where he starts off with a woe, Pharisees. And we don't talk like that, which is probably good. But because we don't, we don't really understand the implications of the language that Jesus is using. Woe is a word that the prophets would use when they were pronouncing God's judgment to them. So woe was a divine no to the hearers. And Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people, but for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses and make long prayers just for show. This is why you will receive a harsher punishment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte. Listen to this, one convert. And when, one, when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. I wonder why Jesus was crucified. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever takes an oath by the sanctuary, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by his oath. Blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? It's cart and horse, chicken and egg stuff. Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on it is bound by his oath. Blind people, for which is greater, the gift of the altar that sacrifices the gift? Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and by everything on it. It's higher ethics stuff. The one who takes an oath by the sanctuary takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you pay a tenth or a tithe of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. And then to quote Jesus as one of Brother Denny's, one of my mentor's favorite quotes to say about any Christian who didn't agree with him, Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet gulp down a camel. That's pretty, I'm going to teach you in that one. Buddy, you're straining a gnat, yet gulping down a camel. We're missing it. In verse 23, Jesus says, you guys are doing all the religious activities right. You're, you're giving your tents. I mean, you guys are particular. But you forgot the weightier matters. And look at what Jesus says. He doesn't say matters equally as important as those religious activities. In other words, in the kingdom of God, there are good things to do, and there are good things to do, and there's a pecking order for the good sometimes. Because Jesus says you should have done it without neglecting the other. It's a both and, not an either or. There is a pecking order of both and, not either or here. You can't be satisfied with the fact that you pay all your tenths and tithes. But you're neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have done it all. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's reaching back to Micah chapter 6 verse 8 in this text. 
because the context is very similar where they're talking about worship and acts of worship. And Micah the prophet says, Mankind, he has told you what is good and what is the Lord, what it is that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. But like I said, the word justice has been hijacked and oftentimes misunderstood because we live in a society that believes more in retributive justice than anything else. In other words, for many of us, justice is getting what you deserve. It's retribution. It's consequence of action. And the thing about the kingdom of God is it is concerned about retributive justice, but it is, I think, more deeply concerned with restorative justice. And I think you see it when you see justice in two words for one world. See, in your Hebrew scriptures and in your Greek scriptures or in your New Testament scriptures, there are two words that are used for justice. In the Hebrew language, which is where Jesus would have been coming from in Matthew 23, there's a word translated justice that is actually the Hebrew word for mishpat, which is literally legislative justice. It is, it is justice on governmental levels. It's law. But then there's another word for justice that's translated justice in your Bibles. Like in Matthew 23, it's the same word there. And sometimes translated righteousness in our Bibles. And it's the word called tzedek, or tzedekah. And it literally means justice on social levels. It is neighbor-to-neighbor ethical justice. So when the Bible speaks of justice, it's speaking of justice on two different dimensions. But when you bring the two words together, it's speaking on justice on the whole dimension of the fabric of society and social order. Do you follow me? So Mishpat is legal justice, and yes, Sadiq is social justice. It is right done to right from neighbor to neighbor. And it makes sense. It's been this way since Torah. Because if you claim and I claim to be the people of God, a God who is a just God of love, compassion, and faithfulness, then how could we justify perpetuating injustices among ourselves? How could we not take care of the widow or the poor? And the thing about it is, these words have been in the Bible for as long as the Bible's been around. And they've meant the same things that they've always meant for as long as the Bible's meant anything. It's been there the whole time. And yet, we sometimes fail to see it because we embrace a Western notion of justice before we embrace Jesus' notion of justice, and we don't mean to, we're not malicious people, but we just placate it. And so you wonder then how a Methodist preacher could be a member of the KKK. Because we read Scripture through the lenses of our society and not the other way around. And so we wonder how the Pharisees could have done what they did. How could the Pharisees go about, as Jesus said, devouring women, widows' homes? You know what he meant by that, right? Hijacking their properties. Because they failed to consider justice in a neighbor-to-neighbor way. Write these words down, if you will, in your bulletin. Look them up, please. Study them deeply. Read your Bibles and notice that almost everywhere in the Old Testament when you see the word justice, it's always paired with the word righteousness most of the time. And the word righteousness that you're seeing there is the word Sadiq, which means social rightness, which is another word for justice on social levels. So when Amos says, let justice roll down and let righteousness like a failing stream flow, 
He is saying, let justice and the legal aspects of society roll down and let justice and the social aspects flow like a stream. In other words, let neighbor actually put skin on what it looks like for neighbor to love and care for neighbor. There's no mystery. Now, in Matthew's book, his book is usually divided by scholars, people much smarter than me, into six different sections and, and discourses. And so this discourse, according to Matthew, is Matthew chapter 23, 1 versus Matthew 26, 1. My point in telling you in that is in Matthew chapter 23, to be honest with that text, I think you've got to work your way through Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And so we have to tend to Matthew 25 because we talked about Matthew 23 if we're going to be fair with what Jesus is trying to communicate. See, what we learn about in Jesus is that the justice that God is working out in our world is restorative. And we're called to join Him in this work. See, in Jesus as King, God is restoring all of creation, making right all that has been made wrong due to sin, rebellion, violence, and fear. And as we as a church live and bear witness to God's kingdom we will find ourselves in the midst of ugly powers, systems of greed, and political posturing, and all kinds of other things. And God's kingdom will not always align with these powers and these ways of life. So therefore, as Christians, to promote peace and restoration, we must sometimes humbly confront these broken systems and set ourselves to make right what has been made wrong. And that, I think, is ultimately Jesus' point. So in Matthew 25, in verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, and then He'll sit on the throne of His glory, all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He'll separate them one from another, just as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, he's talking about nations. He's not talking about a person. He's talking about a people. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now I want you to read the bold with me. For I was what? For I was what? Hungry. And you did what? You gave me something to eat. I was what? And you did what? Gave me something to drink. I was a what? And you did what? I was what? And you gave me what? I was what? And you did what for me? I was where? And you did what? And notice that Jesus takes this very personally. He says, I and me. And so logically, the righteous, note the word there, the righteous, the people given to this way of life, the social justice people, the Sadiq, because they did all this, the righteous heard him and said, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and close you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did, say it with me, to me. The word me in the Greek is a first person pronoun. It's not for me, it's you did it to me. Now, what I love about this text is what I can't stand about this text, all at the same time. Because Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these. So you think about what that means. That means the least of those who are hungry. That means the most hungry of the hungry. You understand that? The most hungry of the hungry. 
the most thirsty of the thirsty, the strangest of the strange. Sure. One could argue. The most naked, as if there's degrees of that, of the naked, are the most destitute of the destitute, are the sickest of the sick, not the ones with the colds, not the ones that we nurse them for about four days and they get better and we're free to go. But I'm talking sitting with them night after night, day after day. The ones in prison, and not the ones who committed the petty crime stuff in prison, but the least of those. Now, that'll mess with you a little bit. See, what have you done to the least of these? And that makes sense because Jesus didn't go around saying, hey, I want to hear some, um, I want to heal some uh, lepers today, but, but I want some, some lepers with just a little bit of stuff on their skin. I mean, no, not the, not the lepers with stuff falling off. I want, I want a little bit, a little bit of stuff. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't just heal the sick and be like, when the, when the leper come up, and like, well, no, man, I mean, you're like, you're really sick. There was nothing about Jesus that skated the margins. He went outside the margins of the margins. He didn't just mess with the woman who, you know, made a few bad choices. He stood in the circle with the woman who was about to be stoned, who was caught in the act of adultery. You follow me? Like when they grabbed her and they put her in front of Jesus and the Pharisees circled her up, Jesus didn't stand outside the circle and be like, yo, hey, he who sinned cast the first stone. Jesus walked into the circle, which means he put himself in the firing line of the stones. For this woman who stood alone so that she would know she doesn't stand alone. And he stood with her. And they played a quick game of tic-tac-toe. He drew in the sand and he stood up and said, Now he who sins cast the first stone. And I doubt Jesus did this. That is what our Jesus does. And so should we be, I mean really, should we be surprised that God would ask us to follow Jesus? Since we claim to be followers of Jesus. Why do I run back in the woods? Because Jesus is back in the woods. Why do you put yourself in harm's way? Because Jesus told me to put put myself in harm's way because people who are under harm need somebody to stand with them. And the thing about it is, I don't know what it is that keeps us from doing this a lot of times. I mean, we could argue and maybe you know, talk about all the different things, but I think sometimes there's, there's a fear. There's a fear of what, of what will happen to us if we do. There's a fear of death. There's a fear of these things. I got to tell you, you know, like, it's just it's the way I feel. We as, as Christians, as, as people who fill the Spirit of God, if we die, we die. Because there's a one out of one chance that that's going to happen anyway. One out of one people, five out of five, ten out of ten, all die. And there's a chance that we're going to put ourselves there. And it may not end well like we think it should end well. But we'll be with, Je- be with Jesus. I'll, I'll, be with, I'll be with Jesus. 
And that's why I think Jesus said, look, don't, don't fear people who can kill your body. They can't kill your soul. Because he knew that there was no way on God's green earth that his people were going to do what they did when the black plague hit in the medieval period. And so when Rome and the government was fleeing the dying during the black plague in medieval times, it was the Christians who stood back. Because they took love neighbors seriously and justice on social levels seriously. And they're the ones who stood back and ministered to the dying of the plague. And they caught the plague themselves and died. But in the process of that living and dying and that serving the least of these, something that changed the world was invented. Something that saved my father outside of the hand of God itself. And that is hospitals. Because they built hospitals. And Roman government, as governments are really good at doing, say, that's a great idea, let's fund it. And let's take the credit for it. And they funded it. And it created a system of healing and hope. And it all started because Christians weren't afraid. So doggone afraid. And I think sometimes we're not so much afraid of death. We're afraid of what our friends will think of us. Because all of a sudden we'll get labeled different political commitments or things that we're actually not. All of a sudden, you might disagree with me, and nobody likes disagreement. But at the end of the day, who cares? Because I didn't say it, Jesus did. And it's not mine and yours to negotiate. It's Jesus' church. So we have to take the lack of popularity to be whatever it becomes. Because right is right. Just is just. And that's not something you and I have the freedom to negotiate. And what we know as a spirit-filled people of God is that God is making right what's been made wrong in the world. And we know it because of the promise of where the whole thing goes. We know that God is doing something in the world that will one day put an end to all the injustices in His return. And so John, when he gets this vision from, from God Himself... He sees what is actually happening in the heavenly realms, and then he sees what's going to happen in the heavenly realms. And I want you to hear the text in Revelation 21, beginning verse 1. John says, Then I saw the new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's important language. And the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Then he started to hear commentary. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he'll live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will no longer exist because the previous things have what? passed away and i love it i picture jesus getting off the throne and this sort of movie scene at this point and entering into john's vision saying look john see all this i'm making everything new now notice what jesus says he doesn't say i'm going to make everything new he says in the language, I am presently right now, while you're there catching this vision, I am making everything new. I am writing all that has been made wrong due to the reign of sin and death in the world. 
due to the fall and the curse that breaks hearts. I am healing hearts right now. You know what that is? That is justice. That's restorative justice. Anytime we offer love to the lonely, that's restorative justice. Anytime we offer a cup of cold water to a thirsty person, that's restorative justice. Because we're not doing it because we're just good people. I mean, some of us are good people, maybe. I'm not one of those guys. I'm doing this because I'm Jesus' kid. I've got a hundred other things to do with my life. But Jesus says, go to the woods. We do these things because we're Jesus' folk. And when we do it, we make tangible the love of God in a way that shows them that it doesn't have to be this way. Those orphans that live in Eldoret, Kenya, 200 of them. Diana, I hate to do this to you. Will you go to that picture of the orphans? All 200 of these children, Francis told me that many of these kids that are going to live in that orphanage that we're going to build, that many of these kids may not even be alive and they may not be in the picture. All of these kids are orphans by AIDS. Whether it was their mamas or daddies drank dirty water, or whether their mamas and daddies got some dirty stuff in their medical um, procedures, or whether their mamas and daddies didn't know how to care for themselves through superstitious means. Nonetheless, these kids do not have parents. And so they go to the school. Christians are the ones who sponsored them. Christians did that. And pay for their medicine and their school and everything and take care of all that they need. But these kids don't have a home. So they come to school, they do life, and then they have to travel an hour from there into the slums of, of Eldoret, Kenya. Into the slums, an hour trek, where many of them are... Atrocious things happen to them as a result of this. And when we build that orphanage, we have, rest we have restored what has been broken. That is restorative justice. We're making right what's been made wrong because of sin and death. And that's why in Revelation, Diane, you can go back to Revelation text. That's why, that's why Revelation says that God's going to do away with tears. These kids aren't going to cry forever. And they're going to cry a little bit this side of glory, but they're going to cry a whole lot less now. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I was talking to a man that I've been walking with who's been homeless. And he's a Christian now. He's a part of a faith community now. And I saw him. I said, man, I got to tell you, brother, I don't know how anybody goes through tragedies without Jesus as Lord. And he said to me, oh, I know, man. He said, I'm calling on the name of the Lord every day now. And this is what he said. He said, I used to wake up every morning in my tears. And now I wake up every morning calling on his name. Oh, you see that? Because we don't wait for Jesus to return before we wipe away some tears. That's called justice on social levels. Because now this man has a place to stay and food to eat and a job to work and friends that love him. Sickness like cancer is an injustice. Betrayal is an injustice. Grief is an injustice. Pain is an injustice. Death, regardless of how justified we may think it is, is an injustice and is called by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 the final enemy of Christ. Because when you're dead, there's no chance to come to Jesus. Death is the greatest insult of them all, and especially if it's a death inflicted on by another. And the reality is justice will never be fully complete and restored until Jesus is Lord over it. 
And what we learn in this Revelation text is that God is not just giving us retributive justice. He's not punishing us all anymore. He's saving us all. He's restoring us all. God's retributive justice will come to those who do not choose to have God as God in their life. The people who will spend their lives perpetuating the systems and the sins of injustice that take place in the world that continue to cause the heartbreak and the heartache and the violence and the fear and the oppression that we see everywhere. God's retributive justice is coming there. But even then, in God's retributive justice, there's a cry because of the gospel of King Jesus for restorative justice where all people can repent, where all people can find forgiveness, where all people can find life, and where all people will find themselves moving toward a day when all of the things that break the world will be made right again there will be no more cancer there'll be no more violence there'll be no more war there'll be no more hunger and thirst and 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 abandonment and loneliness and betrayal there'll be no more of that and we as christians are called to live as though that is happening not going to happen church happening and that is the difference and i'm not sure we all believe it despite a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb that tells us otherwise. So Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, just in case we sometimes forget that really it's about reconciliation. If you don't know, reconciliation means bringing together what's been torn apart. Because justice is not truly restorative justice if it continues to put parties against one another. And I don't mean political parties, I mean parties of people. See, in modern-day notions of justice and activism, a lot of times what happens is there's an ostracization of people. There's a marginalization of a person for another. Robin doesn't, doesn't agree with Lisa, and Lisa doesn't agree with Robin, all in the name of justice. And so instead of working toward reconciliation in the name of justice, they just create camps. That's not justice. Justice, to be justice and to be restorative and to be biblical, always has to move toward reconciliation. And so Paul says in 1 2 Corinthians 5 or 16, from now on then we do not know anyone in a purely human way. In other words, we don't see things the same way we used to. Even if we've known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him this way. I wonder, Christian, I wonder, church, if many of us will leave this church building and see the world the same way we did when we walked in. We see the world the same way we've always seen it, and despite everything Jesus says, we still see it the same way we see it. See it through our political lens, our ideological lens, our upbringing lens, our, our social context lens, our geographic lens, our, our, our national lens, and we just see it the same way we've always seen it. And we see that person the same way we've always seen them, which is then how I can be a Christian and embrace an ism or not care that an ism exists or whatever the case may be. And that just simply means we don't see it differently. Yet still, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? Say it. New creation, read the rest with me. Old things have what? Passed away and look, new things have what? It's right there. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God is reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against him. He's committed the message of reconciliation to us. So we as ambassadors, which is a very political word for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead to a broken world filled with injustice, filled with sin and rebellion, under the reign of sin and death, we plead to that world, be reconciled to God. And we plead not just with our lips, but with our hands and our feet. 
Because he who made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us has called us to. He didn't just save us with his lips, Jesus. He saved us with his hands and feet. We are Christians. We're Christ followers. We're his church. We're the bride and the body of Christ. Jesus is Lord, is our confession. And we are people who believe that Simon and Saul, two radical extremists, and Matthew and Zacchaeus, two treasonous tax collectors, all who were traitors, came to know God and found radical embrace of beloved community in Jesus and were received into God's kingdom. We're a people who believe that more than one whore came to find dignity and inner beauty through Jesus and found the radical embrace of beloved community through Jesus and was received into God's kingdom. We're a people who believe that the poor found a different kind of wealth than Jesus as they received the radical embrace of beloved community through Jesus and together all were received into God's kingdom. We're a people who believe that more than one divorced woman found wholeness in Jesus and she found the radical embrace of beloved community through Jesus and was received in God's kingdom. We're a people who believe that more than one widow found security in Jesus and the radical embrace of beloved community and was received into God's kingdom. We're a people who believe that a thief on a cross had his eternity changed, never once doing one good deed and found a beloved community in paradise through Jesus. We're a people who believe that the founder, the teacher of our faith, the God-made flesh, King Jesus, ate, drank, laughed with, and loved. The last, the least, the lost, the lonely, the left out. And nobody else would. And he did it around the table. And in Jesus, we're reminded that we do not have the right to choose anything other than following him if we're going to bear his name. And you and I have the Spirit of God inside of us. We are more than able to do it. If we will pray, and as the Western African proverb calls us to, move our feet, we will follow Jesus wherever he will go. And we will embrace the least of these. And we will speak to the injustices of the world that evade many people's minds, but invade many people's lives. Let us be that people.